episode 325 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Michael O'Malley. It's just me and Michael. Just in today's episode, riding on that motorcycle together. <laughs> I didn't think of that. Yeah, it's just, it's just, just think of that image. It's just me and Michael. I'm holding a plant for whatever reason, and we're on the motorcycle. Uh... In today's episode, we got movies that we saw this week in part one. In part two, we'll be continuing our Abbas Kiarostami series with 1990s close-up. Um, but let's go ahead and jump into movies that we saw this week. I'm going to kick us off. This, this was um, this was one actually, Michael, you talked about a while back on our 300th episode. Um, but uh, it's uh, Tampopo from 1985. I know this is a favorite of a lot of Cinematary folks. Um this was my first time watching it. Uh, it's by Juzo Itami, and uh, <laughs> I guess the the core story is that there's a lot of stuff happening in this movie. But the core story is you have these these two truck drivers who happen upon this this kind of uh, uh, hole in the wall ramen shop, and it's run by this widow whose name's Tampopo. And they go there, and among many things, including getting in a fight with a bunch of guys, they also have some just middling ramen noodles. And so she's like, I need you to, to teach me the, the art of noodle making. And so, you know, complete with like rocky level uh, montage sequences of, of <laughs> them making noodles. <laughs> You uh, you have them like it's it's like a mixture of like Rocky and like the A team because you also like gather a team of of people to like add different facets to her noodle making that I kind of enjoyed. Um, but like all the while, like while this is happening, you also have like these kind of small vignette stories uh, of just kind of random, really yeah, just really just random food related. Uh, stories that kind of circle um, the main one with with Tampopo and the truck drivers, um, including I think you described it in 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 detail in the 300th episode. But uh, the you have this like newly married couple that has this that shares a egg yolk with one another. Oh yeah, um, that's the one I remember things. best. <laughs> yeah, that's well, it's, it's tough to forget to be honest. Um. But then you also have like that random one where it's like the guy who has like the toothache and, oh <laughs> and then he gets ice cream and then he gets ice cream but he and he like gives it to the to the kid who's walking around with like the sign that says don't give him sweets. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so I I liked it cuz it was just so it, it you would just cut from this very straightforward story of like the guys helping Tampopo get better at making ramen to just these strange stories of people and like how food is connecting them. Um, but the like the main story again, like I said, the, the main story of of them teaching Tampopo how to make ramen is kind of. Um, I was thinking when I finished watching it, they should have like this should have been like a movie series where these two truck drivers were just like going around Japan making um making like helping helping people get better at cooking food or cooking ramen I don't know like just like they could have like it could have been like a series of movies where they were just popping around 
you know, helping people be, get better at making food because um, it's super entertaining. You have the, the, like I said, they have this team that's assembled. You have like the guy who who teaches her how to make the best noodles, and then you have the best broth, and then you have the guy who was in the fight at the beginning. He's like, no, nah, I'm gonna. I'm sorry, I it's you know it's the I see the error of my ways. I'm gonna help you guys make the make the shop look really nice, and then like you get to this point late in the film where uh, <laughs> where they have um, like the so the shop's finished and people are there and everybody's enjoying it and you literally like have this moment where like Tampopo and the one truck driver like meet eyes and they're just like they ha- like they have that shared moment where they're like yeah we did this. <laughs> And they like go about their way, and it's like credits. And I was like, "This is this is such a great movie." It, it um, I saw one review on Letterbox that kind of compared, said it, it feels like um, not necessarily like the Japanese version of Airplane, but like akin to Airplane, just because it it's it's constantly juggling like all of these different uh these different genres. I mean, it's at parts it's like. A western but then like i described earlier like you have like this whole montage sequence that feels like a i mean it feels like a rocky movie it feels like a sports movie where you're you, like it's this whole training sequence where tampopo is like moving the different bowls places and like running around the kitchen and he's like timing her um and so it, and then uh, you know constantly it has like these absurdist comedy moments and so it's like it's constantly shifting between all of these different modes um and it's always very fascinating and very entertaining i never was i never lost interest with tampopo i think that's probably impossible um but yeah i don't know i was i i don't know why it took me so long to finally get around to this but uh yeah high recommend on tampopo it's on criterion channel now um it if it turns in if it had turned into a series it would have been fun to see it like escalate like rocky did and so like by like Tampopo five or something she's like training on the mountainside of like mount fuji like in like some sort of like geopolitical conflict uh in which ramen is involved like i would have liked to see that too like the kind of escalating like one-upsmanship of like the inevitable like sequel um you know escalation yeah like like i, I could just see a natural progression where they were like no we got to take this to the next level um, and you could still like, like it, it, like it's a perfect formula that you can just work with because you can have like the core story of like them taking taking the the ramen to the next level, but then you can just have a bunch of random stuff that kind of fits around it. Um, I don't know. It, it's I'm probably partial to it at the moment because I've been watching a bunch of Midnight Diner, which is also just a show that has like this core food thing but also has all these little vignette stories around it and all these like this you know core amount of characters who uh kind of have their own personalities to interject into this main story so it's kind of the same vibes um but yeah i don't know i was like i could totally see this being like a series of movies where it's just you you continue to up the stakes of like tampopo is gonna be gonna become the best ramen cook uh <laughs> in all of japan and so yeah, she has to go and like, she really has to go, all, you know, all the way. But at the same time, then you have like a weird story where, I don't know, there's like the, the, maybe the kid gets over sweets. I don't know. I I don't know why the kid had a, the, like I don't know why the kid had a little sign that said I can't eat sweets and was just wandering the streets of Japan or Tokyo that day. So, 
Maybe it's like a reverse psychology trick so that people will give him sweets. Like, it's just a long con. It's such a strange scene, though, because he's just sitting there and he's, like, had this toothache and he's eating the ice cream and he just, like, looks at this kid and you have, like, this long sequence where, like, he's making eye contact with the kid and the kid's looking there and the kid kind of has, you know, where's the friend's house eyes going on, like, just, like, come on, give me the ice cream. (laughs) And he's just, like... I'm going to give this kid the ice cream because he has this obnoxious sign over his, you know, around his neck to, <laughs> to, uh, to insinuate that he desperately wants it. Um, the, the funny thing I didn't realize until like <clears throat> after the movie ended was that, uh, Ken Watanabe, who, uh, is pretty, I feel like is relatively well known in, in, um, the United States for like his roles in like inception and the, first christopher nolan batman movie and a number of other movies um was one of the truck driver guys i didn't i did not recognize him throughout the entire movie i didn't recognize that either yeah that's it i was like i was like looking at the film afterwards on on letterbox and i was like oh that's ken watanabe you know i also the the you you kind of have like this western trope with those two where they 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 kind of feel like a little bit um like you have a little bit of like a Wyatt Earp type thing where it just feels like they're, you know, they're like rolling into town. The one's got his cowboy hat on. <laughs> right. <laughs> like it's like the, just like just like the, the Western trope of it is very entertaining. Um, I think it, like the first time they go to Tampopo's ramen shop, uh, like the, it, it, it does feel like it has like this whole unforgiven vibe to it where he just they like walk in and like the whole the whole place like kind of turns and looks at them and they like, you know, saunter over to their, to their stool and start eating the food. Um, no, it's, it, it's, a, I, I don't know. I would, I highly recommend it. I know, um, Jessica's talked about it and you talked about it extensively for the 300th episode. So I, I'm going to co-sign all that stuff and say, check out, check out Tampopo. But I would also recommend as I'm sure others have to be sure and like eat, before you watch it because there's a lot of good food yeah it makes you desperately want to eat ramen also a lot of gross food too so it may cut both ways yeah yeah you, know, ho- you may not feel the same way about raw eggs ever again well you know we're no i guess no you know you just got to find that person in your life who you can share a raw egg with um that guy also has like a has a really entertaining ending of you know I don't want to say like where it goes, but like the the way his storyline ends. That's the same. Like that's a bit like the last vignette, right? Ends with them. Am I remembering that right? Yeah, and he's like sitting. Yeah, okay. All right, I'll just spoil it. What I mean, whatever. So I mean, it came out in nineteen eighty five. So the guy like gets like sh- he gets shot because he's like a, I guess he's a um, I don't think he's a, he, he's ya- he's a part of the yakuza. He's just like some kind of gangster guy, but he gets like shot a bunch of times. And he's like laying there and then his wife comes over and she's like crying. And like in his final moments, instead of being like, you know, I love you, but he like goes over this, um, this like recipe for, uh, oh shoot, what is, is it? Is it the me... one where the, the hogs eat the yams and then you scoop out the half yeah. digested yams from the intestines? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he like goes through this recipe and she's like, I'll try it. We'll both have it. And he's like, no. 
only you'll have it and then he dies and i was <laughs> like he spent his last moments like expressing this this dish that he wanted to have so just you know food it's important i guess i don't know <laughs> um but yeah it's on it's on the criterion channel if you have that it's uh it's both well, worth a watch um yeah uh, but Michael, I'm going to toss it over to you. You had uh, two movies you wanted to talk about. Yeah, so um, I'll start with the newer of the two. I watched um, World of Tomorrow Chapter 3, which is the third um, short film. Oh, this one's not too short. This is like over half an hour long. Um, but anyway, it's the, the third short film in this like now series that animator Don Hertzfeld has made um, called The World of Tomorrow uh, that depicts this like future world in which like people like are able to pass their consciousness on to clones and therefore live forever but also like each clone is a little bit imperfect and so by the time you get to like the ninth generation clone you've become like you know kind of a weird like shell of yourself um so anyway like don hertzfeld like probably by this point he's famous um but at one point he was like kind of like a really underground animator who did like rejected and a bunch of short films that all had like basically the same aesthetic in which he had these like really simple stick figure drawings like matched with like absurd like nihilism and slash like just kind of uh you know kind of uh body humor slash horror um and then like he kind of as i guess in like the turn of the 20 like early 2010s um he, you know, kind of pivots toward not more serious, but like less like kind of uh, less juvenile, maybe. Uh, there's no more bleeding anuses in his in his work. So like starting with like, you know, it's such a beautiful day, which is like a trilogy of short films that became a feature. Like he starts like really seriously considering like the nature of like consciousness and identity and that sort of thing. And um also starting to incorporate a lot more like overt digital effects too. And I bring all this up just to say that like, I feel like World of Tomorrow chapter three is like thus far like the apex of that like uh, career trajectory in which like, this is like an extremely sprawling, like serious minded film uh, that like more so than any of his films before, like is using like heavily, heavy like digital effects and also like, if I'm not wrong, like actual constructed 3D like models that he's uh, using to like uh, have his animated characters walk through. Uh, this is really lush looking movie that like, you know, it feels like taking like the, the kind of aesthetic conceits of like the first two movies, which is like, you know, these stick figures in front of like weird swooshy like digital backgrounds and like just elevating it to like a really high level of production design and detail. Um, uh, so, like, the first two movies were all centered on um, uh, Don Hertzfeld, I guess, had, had a, is it his niece? And it, there, there's a young child um, that he, like, just recorded, and then he kind of had that as a character in the, in, in the movies yeah, uh, I think called it's Emily. Yeah. yeah, and so, like, the first two movies are kind of defined by, like, there's, like, this kind of robotic, like, nth generation clone of Emily talking to a young baby like toddler Emily and so like you have like this kind of improvised like recording of this toddler just babbling about like random stuff and then like he like adapts that into like a plot and so like the first two movies are like that and but by now like the the 
that girl is like, I guess like probably a preteen or something. So she's not like, he's not recording like a little babbling kid anymore. Uh, and so this movie kind of jukes a little bit and isn't really about that core character. It's about like a character that shows up in the first movie who's like a, a who has like a romance with like the, the adult version of that character. Um, and so in a weird way, this is like a kind of like romance, but it's also like this extremely like convoluted and heady, like sci-fi, like time travel story. Um, he introduces the time travel and I can't remember if it was in the second one or not, but like definitely it's like a core component of this one where like you have like clones traveling back in time to tell themselves or the early versions of themselves, like earlier generation clones, like to do things so that they can like prevent things from happening. And the big thing is like in the first movie, um, David, the, the love interest, like I guess like has an aneurysm and dies like at this moment. It's kind of, like matching the tone of it is like this kind of random nihilistic thing that happens that's like melancholy and sad. Um, and so like in this movie, like you see like the like original David and like a, a later clone of Emily comes back in time to tell the like original David all the stuff that's going to happen so that he can prevent um, his death because like there's like a whole like mythology that's introduced and like it's weirdly like plot centric which is like different for a Don Hertzfeld movie like this is like a twisty like like kind of like really purely like science fiction story um that like intersects a lot of the same themes of like identity and stuff like that like from the first few but like kind of recontextualizes the whole like world of tomorrow as less like this kind of like absurd like parable that like the first two were into like like honestly like a kind of uh like sci-fi epic and like that i guess that might be a little weird like a, a weird juke for people because it, it does feel different to like have to like really pay attention to the plot of one of these but like i found it really really interesting um and like matched with like the really increasing ambition of the visuals it's it's a really singular um like experience to watch um I was reading an interview with Don Hertzfeld not too long ago um, surrounding this, um, the release of this movie, and he was talking about how big a fan of science fiction writing he is, and like I guess like that makes sense that this movie would go in that direction. And I think like honestly, like if you take these three movies together, they don't really make a feature in the same way that like it's such a beautiful day, like those shorts did, but like they do really make I think a compelling case. Like if you kind of retroactively view the others as like you know, sci-fi as well, as opposed to, like, kind of absurdist, um, you know, existential cartoons. Um, they make a compelling case that Don Hertzfeld is actually a really great sci-fi writer. Like, it's, like, all really well thought out and, like, schematic and interesting and, like, interested in a lot of the stuff that, like, great sci-fi often is, you know, where you, like, technology kind of pushes, like, human, human nature to the, like, the very fringe of what we can imagine and, like kind of forces us to confront like the, the like what does it mean to be human you know because we're presented with the very edges of what's recognizably human and I think that like especially this third one like is really interested in doing that in the context of like some like kind of familiar genre trappings but uh, you know like a kind of like dystopian satire or like time travel stories or whatever but also doing it through like the Don Hertzfeld like um uh, like personality that is like really heavy on like 
um, you know, kind of jokes and absurdity as well. And I don't know, like I, if people haven't checked this out, you can rent it on Vimeo for like five bucks, which is kind of steep for a rental of like just a half hour short film. But uh, I, I really think it's, it's like a, an interesting movie that is, it feels dense and rewarding in ways that like, you know, a lot of like, you know, contemporary sci-fi uh, filmmaking just doesn't like it. I, I think it's like, it, it feels really like, like all, I, all three of these movies really reward rewatch because they're just so stuffed with like details. And this one in particular is stuffed with like kind of peripheral details as like this character goes through this kind of like, you know, insane plot. Um, and I, I think like it's worth your five bucks because you'll probably get a couple of, of rewatches out of it. Um, you have it for 72 hours to watch. So uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I recommend it. Um, you, you definitely would need to have seen the other two, though. Like he's like jumping in and out of the timelines of the first two movies. So um, I mean, this is should, don't let this like, you know, don't jump in cold to this. But like if you've enjoyed the first two this will be like a little bit of a change of pace, but I think like it's also a really rewarding direction to take, like the the kind of thematic ambitions of it. So well, he's he, he's like a Don Hertzfeld. I feel like is 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 one of those folks who he's like he's known within people who are like engaged in in like not really, I guess maybe independent, but just kind of off the beaten path movies, especially animation. I mean, he, but at the same time, like has recognition, it seems like within the industry, however you want to describe that, because I mean, he even did like a, one of the, the openings for like a Simpsons episode. So it's like, yeah, it's a great couch gag also. <laughs> yeah. It's like, so it's not like he's, he's completely off, you know, unknown, but at the same time, I don't feel like he, he's somebody who, you know, we had the conversation, what was it, last week with Wolf Walkers, where it's kind of nice that, uh, you know, uh, Netflix and all of these other streaming services are providing, you know, this, this capital to animation studios, especially non-Disney, Pixar, DreamWorks studios that, you know, actually need a little bit of, of backing in order to make their stuff. and But it doesn't seem like he's, you know, I don't know if this is there's not interest in his stuff or it's one of those things where he kind of likes being in the lane that he's at because like you described like he's handling a lot of the distribution you know it's not like g kids is helping or something like that like he's he's fully um you know producing his thing and then putting it out into the world on his own terms um and so i don't know he's kind of like this interesting outlier when it comes to modern animation yeah, I, I get the feeling that he kind of likes the, like, iconoclasm because he does most of the stuff for his movies, too. Like, he's not working with very many people. Um, and, like, I mean, he got his start doing these short films that are essentially student films but kind of got popular, like, rejected, like, this kind of breakthrough. Um, I mean, that was nominated for an Oscar, but, like, if I'm not mistaken, like, he did literally everything with that movie. Like, I don't think there's anyone else involved with it. Um, and, like... I remember he has kind of like that, that like aesthetic, or not aesthetic, but he kind of has the sensibility of an internet creator. Um, the first time I watched Rejected was on YouTube. Uh, a guy in college like showed it to me and he wasn't even like a film guy. It like kind of has the attitude of like, here's this like kind of weird thing that you floats around the internet. And it kind of still feels like he's working in that vein, even though he clearly has like refined his craft a ton and has like, you know, greatly increased his ambitions, but he still kind of feels like, 
uh, an internet content creator more so than like an industry uh, fixture. And I, I get the feeling that he enjoys that, like the flexibility of that status as opposed to becoming, you know, someone who's like, you know, enmeshed in a like fully fleshed out studio. Yeah, that's what's kind of interesting because I feel like that's, um, you know, I think it's a subject that we'll probably get into in part two, like the line between um, art and, and reality. But like he, like the the type of content creator, internet, internet creator that he is seems to be somewhat of like a, a fading, a fading thing. Just because like I look at, there's like this weird sensation with um you know known figures for whatever however you want to define that like on something like on tiktok or even on youtube where they have this following they have this this um brand that they've kind of established for themselves and because of the popularity from it and the fact that like media is all folded in on itself you know you'll see this this tiktok chef or this you know person who does kind of this comedy bit and they'll they'll take that that routine or they'll take that that cooking style and morph it into some sort of kind of like inline ad which is not a um a new concept but is def it's just, there's something just strange about how that's that's like a path for people now and so it's kind of interesting that he he feels like an internet creator that's just purely about like i'm making this content for this specific audience it's not like there's really any overarching like this you know we're not going to see like world of tomorrow toys or anything unless he decides to make them himself and so it feels like it's it's just he's completely insulated in this bubble and that sounds like a negative thing but i'm like no it's kind of something that seems you know it, it, it doesn't seem like um the you know the the capitalism around him is going to be able to penetrate it like he just kind of lives in his don Hertzfeld world which i kind of appreciate yeah and like i think a lot of people on the internet you know kind of like self i don't know whatever like self-made like creators or whatever like there's a there's an there's that arc you talk about where they slowly kind of like enter like a like some sort of mainstream industry you know or like become kind of like you know create their own like capital that they you know kind of you know use in that way and like Don Hertzfeld has a little bit of that trajectory without like any sort of like I mean clearly he cares about like making a living I'm sure but like he his work clearly is like expanding and and growing more ambitious in the same way that like a lot of you know creators on the internet their work goes from being kind of amateurish to like you know really professional productions and like i mentioned like world of tomorrow chapter 3 like feels really lush and and produced in a way that like even world of tomorrow 2 which was like also a lot a big step up technically um, you know, even that didn't really rival what the three is doing, but also like all those ambitions don't feel like anything, but like he's getting more ambitious at, at his craft rather than getting more ambitious at his brand. Like, um, I'm sure he has brand awareness, but there's not been something that he made where I felt like he's doing this to, to further like his presence or his career or something like even that Simpsons couch gag is just like so thoroughly his own um you know even though it's on like you know kind of like the 
I don't know, like the, the, the preeminent like animated like work of like the past like 30 years, but yeah, but, but it's, but it's, it's almost like a nod just from the industry for, you know, that's, this says like, yeah, they're aware of him. You know, the, the Simpsons, like you say, is, is such a, a large platform that it's kind of a little bit of a nod to him from the industry. But at the same time, yeah, it's just, you know, I don't know. I, I, I appreciate his work. I'm going to, I'm going to check out world of tomorrow chapter three, cause I'm a big fan of the 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 other two and it's a beautiful day and i think i talked about it's a beautiful day a couple months ago when we did our 2010s whatever thing so andrew and yeah. i were talking not too long ago and we were trying to figure out like what were like the definitive like hand-drawn or, or sell like non-cg animation um features of like the 2010s and like Edit, or it's it's such a beautiful day is a little bit of an edge case because there is computer generated imagery in it but like you know it's still like hand drawn on some cases and that was like one of the ones that preeminently came to mind and I I feel like his like world of tomorrow stuff is definitely like also like at the at the like vanguard of like people doing like people who are still doing at least some portion of like uh, hand drawn animation you know that increasingly small pool of people yeah um well, you, your your second film is another kind of interesting animation auteur. Yeah, so this has been talked about on the podcast before, and I think was covered in your TIFF coverage last year, right? Yeah, it was briefly it was um, briefly mentioned <laughs> last week. So okay, yeah. So I watched um, uh, Makoto Shinkai's uh, twenty nineteen animated film Weathering with You. Um, which uh, so Makoto Shinkai is like you know the uh, a real, at this point a really famous uh, animation director um, from Japan. Of course, he did Your Name and Garden of Words and Five Centimeters Per Second. Um, and he's like all his movies kind of share this like extremely intricate like like borderline like as close as like you can get in cell animation to like photorealism it's just like extremely uh lush um uh and extremely detailed um animation um and uh weathering with you is yet another uh take on that aesthetic um in this movie um as i'm sure you guys talked about um last time i don't remember exactly what you said but uh, it's basically this romance, which most of Shinkai's movies are a romance in some way, uh, between this dude whose name I don't remember, but he's kind of like the typical like Shinkai male protagonist in which he's kind of like a, a young man who's sad and he's homeless at the beginning of the movie. So I don't want to like, you know, be too <laughs> yeah, harsh on him. Like this, but... <laughs> who like leaves home and goes to, uh, I think it's Tokyo. It is Tokyo, and just, yeah. And it's just like wandering around eating McDonald's. Yeah, and struggling to find a job and stuff. But um, he eventually finds this... Uh, he eventually starts working as a journalist, I guess, um, with this, like, uh, it's, uh, I was a little fuzzy on what they do. They don't actually, like, produce that much content, but they, like, or publish that much content themselves. They kind of, like, I guess are a collective of freelancers or something. Anyway, it's not important, but he... Well, it's like a, it's like a, what is it? It's, but it's, it's based off of, like, conspiracy theories. (laughs) Yeah, they, they kind of, like, feed, like, the tabloids and that sort of thing, like, um... But anyway, like he, 
so you get, he finally gets a job there, but like I was saying, he's kind of like the typical like Shinkai protagonist in the sense that he's kind of whiny and, and self-obsessed and adolescent, which is like fine things to explore. Um, uh, but it gets a little irritating in this movie for reasons I'll explain in a minute. But um, he finds this uh, girl um, who I guess is like about his age or whatever um, and like rescues her from like this like kind of rough crowd that she's fallen in with. And it turns out that she can control the weather, um, like make make it rain or not, and um, you just find those sometimes, you know. Yeah, like well, apparently there's like uh, this like later in the movie they get into a little bit of the mythology of it, but yeah, this is apparently like a whole class of people who are like um, what are they called, rain girls or something, or weather girls? There, there's like a, an official <sighs> title for it, but basically they can yeah. control the weather and they start making money by. Um, like it's it's been rainy a lot in in Tokyo, like like really rainy, and she can make little patches of sunshine, and so they start like basically like a sunshine girl, sunshine that's girl. It. That's it. Yeah, thank you. And so they start making money by like setting up an online shop where people can request sunshine at certain parts. Like, oh, I'm getting married on this day at this part. Can you make it not rain? Um, and so that happens, and that's like kind of like a thing. But then it eventually becomes clear that like she's like, as I guess all sunshine girls are, like this kind of mystical presence who's going to become one with um, the the weather and kind of restore balance to the weather because um, it's been raining like a ton, like an abnormal amount in Tokyo. Um, and when, like, so eventually later in the movie, she, like, just kind of, like, material, like, dematerializes into the clouds and becomes no more. And it's all sunny and, and good. But this little, this little dude, our protagonist, um, he's, you know, he's got the love bug. And the love bug means that you gotta, you gotta uh, get rid of the sunshine so you can have your metaphorical sunshine in this girl. Um, and so, like, he goes through this whole quest. I'm gonna, just going to spoil the end of the movie because um, it's old now. Yeah, go for it. Um, he goes through this whole thing to, like, reclaim her um, and, like, reclaim her from the clouds, basically. And he does... And the rain comes back, and then the movie ends with, like, half of Tokyo flooded. And, uh, you know, he's all, like, everybody's like, well, it looks like Tokyo's going to go underwater any day now. And he's like, yeah, but I got to go find this girl. Because for some reason, they don't, like, immediately reconnect. Uh, they got to wait for Tokyo to flood first. Um, and the movie ends with him reuniting with this girl, and it's all, like, you know, happy romance and stuff. Um, and I know that Andrew did not like this movie at all for this specific reason, is that, like, this movie is kind of about a climate crisis and then subsumates, like, the, or subjugates this climate crisis to, like, this kind of typical adolescent Makoto Shinkai romance, um, ending up, like, basically where this kid has decided that his romantic happiness is more important than, like, Tokyo and then presumably the world being eventually flooded by like this like catastrophic climate uh, crisis, you know, which, you know, in the context of a real world in which we are really facing a climate crisis feels like, I don't know, like a little bit of an irresponsible thing. Like I kind of was going in hopeful because like there's something kind of interesting about like the idea of, you know, why does the climate crisis continue? And, like, this movie is saying quite clearly, like, it's continuing because there are certain people who are selfish and who have the means to stop it or at least, like, do something about it, but who don't because they're, like, kind of self-obsessed. 
And like that's like a possibly interesting thing for this movie to do, but the movie doesn't really get into that, and it it kind of like adopts this weird like laissez-faire attitude toward it, where like he's kind of like at the end of the movie feeling bad that he's like you know man you know Tokyo's flooded, I don't know how I feel about this, and this like old wise lady comes up and is like you know this all used to be underwater anyway, it's just like nature's returning, and like I don't know there's just kind of like weird uh, kind of complacency about like. Well, it's all part of nature's cycles. Um, you know, it feels like the kind of people who you're made by the kind of person who would be like, if you point to like global warming, they would say like, yeah, but back when the dinosaurs were around, it was much warmer, and we're just in another cycle. Like, it kind of feels like that attitude. Um, so, like, that's not good. I will say though, um, I never am watching Makoto Shinkai movies for the stories, which I think are pretty hit and miss at best. Like, I like your name. There are parts of it that irritate me. I don't like the story of Garden of Words that much. Um, five centimeters per second's fine, I guess. Like, I'm just never that excited about the stories. Like, a lot of times they have the same kind of protagonist, like male protagonists that are kind of like whiny, self-obsessed, like kind of like imprinting on like women or girls and, and like the movie like kind of circle like goes out of its way to validate these kind of like weird like romantic relationships that are kind of strange like I'm thinking especially like Garden of Words where it's like really kind of icky teacher meets a younger person thing and um, so like I guess it doesn't ruin the movie as much as it might have for someone else that like Weathering With You story is just not that good because the reason I watch these movies is because the animation is so like just wonderful to look at. And I honestly think that this might be his best looking movie. Like your name looks really good too. Uh, but like this movie like does so much with rain. Like I've never seen, and a lot of his movies are rainy. Like Garden of Words is also a very rainy movie. Um, but like this movie is just like all these raindrops are just like shimmering like the whole movie. And uh, it does a whole lot with like sunlight, like being like kind of like going through the prism of like water and stuff and it. It just looks incredible, honestly. And, like, I thought that part was really awesome. Uh, the story is a bummer in, in not a good way, and I think that the movie's pretty heavily compromised because of that. But, like, if I'm being honest, like, the reason I'm watching this guy's movies is never the stories. And so I'm still enjoying this movie on a, on a certain, like, kind of just aesthetic level because I don't... There's, there are really, like, no movies that look like his movies. Um, just this... Just elaborate, like just ecstatic like vision of like a world that's just like shimmering with with life and detail and, and color and like i mean this movie looks awesome and um well that sounds good all right well we're gonna take a short break and then we'll be back with part two talking close up after this Cinematary listeners, this is your favorite Filipino podcaster, Jessica Carr. I'm here to let you know about a couple of things that Cinematary offers that you might not know about. First, if you're a fan of what Cinematary is doing, please consider joining us on Patreon. Remember when we weren't clamoring for your dollars? Or now we're just clamoring for five of your dollars. So please help us. 
and donate to our Patreon, and then you'll get exclusive content from our staff, including our Film Theory and Chill series, where a panel takes a piece of theory each month and deconstructs it before diving into whatever topic is on their mind from the past week. The $5 each month is investment in the website and the podcast, and it goes solely to paying our writers for the reviews each week, so please consider doing it. It's only $5. If you missed an episode of Cinematary or a piece of writing we've had, you should consider signing up for our free newsletter. Each Sunday, we send out a note with the latest podcast episode, piece of Patreon content, and the last two reviews that we've written at Cinematary.com. It's perfect for those of you who are interested in what's happening, and it makes sure that you don't miss a single Cinematary review. Finally, the easiest thing that you can do to help us is to please, please give us a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever else you're using to listen to the show. This helps us get more eyeballs and ears on the podcast and the website, and it helps the people know about Cinematary, which is really what we're here for. So to recap, consider donating to our Patreon, sign up for the free newsletter, and give us a rating or review. We would really appreciate if you could do these things. Thank you for listening, and now back to the show. with part two of episode 325 of Cinematary. In this part, we'll be continuing our films of Abbas Kiarostami series with 1990s Close-Up, uh, which was written and directed by the Iranian director. Uh, while reading a novel by Iranian director Moshin Makalmabaf on the bus, Ali uh, Sabzian strikes up a conversation with a, with a woman, uh, Marok Anhaken, Ahakan, I think that's what the family's name is. When she tells him her family admires his work, he uh, Ali pretends to be the filmmaker to impress her. Becoming friendly with the family, he tells them that he is preparing a new movie, but when they uncover his true identity, he is arrested for fraud. This film uh, reenacts the true story of the incident with Ali and the family playing themselves. Uh, Close-up is based on the real events that occurred uh, in northern Tehran, in the late 1980s, Kiarostami first heard about Sabzian in 1989 after reading about the incident in an article in the Iranian magazine Sorush by journalist Hassan Farazmand. Uh, Kiarostami immediately suspended work on the film project that he was in pre-production of and began making a documentary on Sabzian. Uh, Kiarostami was allowed to film his trial and also got Sabzian uh, the Anaka family and uh, Farazman to agree to participate in the film and to reenact incidents from the past. Kiarostami also arranged for Moshin Makamabaf to meet Sabzian and help facilitate forgiveness between Sabzian and the family. Uh, the film references one of Kiarostami's previous films, the 1974 uh, drama The Traveler, and it also mentions The Cyclist, which is an 1987 sports drama by the, the real 
Mohsen Makabovov, uh, who made this three, who made that movie three years prior to Close Up. Um, in Iran, the film was uniform. It was met by uniformly negative reviews. Uh, it was appreciated more when it went to when it went abroad, especially to America. Um, the New York Times called it brilliant, calling uh, noting its radically drab cinema verite style that helps blur any difference between what is real and what is reconstructed. Uh, and the New Yorker said, in Kiarostami's furiously uh, clear view, religious dogma suppresses the eye's observations through the dictate of the word. His calmly unwavering images, with their wry humor and generous sympathy, have the force of a steadfast resistance. So on that note, let's talk a little bit about Close Up, which I feel like is probably, um, if not the, at least one of the kind of go-to movies. If you, you know, if you Googled Abbas Kiarostami, it's probably one of the ones that's going to pop up as like, this is one of his big movies. Um, it seemed to be kind of really one of his, his uh, I, I guess not necessarily big breakthroughs within, with Western audiences. You know, I mean, I think that it, seemed like the Coker trilogy really kind of opened him up to to Western audiences to a degree. But this one seemed to be the one that really put him on the map as like a substantial director, it seemed like. Um, well, it's worth noting that only one uh, entry in the Coker trilogy had come out when this movie was released. Yeah, so I think, I think that kind of... I guess that may be like, you know got him a little noticed by by western critics and western film uh fans and then this one was more of the one that went yeah this guy like let's pay attention to him um but yeah this is the second time i'd seen it michael and michael i know this was the second time you'd seen it as well what did you uh what did you make of close up on the on a rewatch um i mean i think it's really really good um like like it's great um uh, we were talking off mic um, before we were recording that, like, for me, I watched Certified Copy first, which, um, you know, is like a, a movie um, that's set... Is it in Italy? Is that where it is? Um, yeah, it's set in Tuscany. Yeah, you know, with, like, you know, European actors. Um, and then after that, I basically did what you described, where I, like, Googled, like, Kiarostami, because I was like, oh, close-up was really good. Or not close-up, uh, certified copy is really good. And then close-up showed up. So I watched that, which is, like, you know, an Iranian movie. Um, very different from certified copy, although thematically they're pretty linked. Um, and then I watched after that, Like Someone in Love, which is set in Japan. And so, like, I had, like, a really, like, probably the, the most, like, diverse, like, experience like exposure to Kiara Ostami I could have had um, when I was getting into him. And I had like no idea, like who is this filmmaker who's like always filming in different places and none of his movies seem alike. Um, and so like when I watched Close Up, I thought it was great, but I have a lot better like context for like what it's doing now than when I first watched it. Um, and I like, I, I honestly think this is really, like this is probably... His best movie, I don't know, like, Taste of Cherry is really good, too. Um, but I think, like, having seen this now, I, I think I, I like it the best. And it's just such a, like, good-hearted movie. Like, it's just so wholesome. Like, you were talking about how, like, in the in the production of it, he's, like, facilitating reconciliation through the production of this movie. And, like, I feel like the movie, like, really bears that out. Like, it's a movie that feels like a force for, like, human connection. And I just think that it's, like, really beautiful like and because the movie really gets into like why 
at least why this guy says he impersonated the director, right? And he talks about how lonely he was and how um, upset he was, like, with certain things in his life. And to embody this director was, like, some, like a, like, he could feel, like, a feeling of, like, fraternity and, like, empowerment through this, like, act of fraud. And I think that it's such a compassionate look at that. Um, There's, like, this, like, monologue that he gives in the courtroom, like, late in the movie. And is the courtroom footage all documentary footage? Like, are we supposed to think that? I believe so. Yeah. And so, like, I guess he said this in court, which, like, would have blown me away. But he, like, talks about, like, how um, when he saw, like, when he found uh, the director whom he impersonated, when he, like, discovered that guy's body of work it like spoke to his soul and like it like helped him like not suffer in life very much or as much as he would like he you know had felt like super downcast and like disenfranchised and stuff like that and like this guy's body of work like like spoke to his soul and like gave him meaning in life and like that was what according to him like that was what inspired him to like kind of embody this director was that like he had just felt so moved by this guy's, um, like, like art that he just like, I got, I, you know, I don't know. Like he, he felt such like kinship with this guy that he like, you know, the, like any sense of like whatever separates one human being from another, like disappeared for him. And I don't know there, whether or not he's actually lying is something that the movie kind of toys with a little bit, which is interesting. But I think ultimately like the movie ends with like validating his perspective, you know, like you get kind of like the semi-famous like scene where he and the guy are like on the motorcycle together. Like um, when he's like met the filmmaker for real and they've kind of like had their moment of bonding. Um, and like, I, I think the movie really comes down on the, the side of like, you know, through this scenario of like fraud and impersonation and deception, there was like, you know, some, some element of like human connection that made people feel less alone and like find other people. And like, I don't know, I think that's really, really beautiful. And I think like, especially in the context of his other movies, like Taste of Cherry or like uh, what we were talking about last week with the Coker trilogy, like especially that second Coker trilogy, like, this seems to be a real project of Kiarostami's is to like figure out like what does it mean for like one human being to know another human being um, and certified copy plays with that as well as we see like that kind of relationship uh, where they kind of like m- their identities morph as the movie goes on and it becomes unclear how well these people actually know each other and like this feels like maybe the most like hopeful uh, and like optimistic Kiarostami's ever been about like you know how do people find like community with other people or, or, or meaningful experiences with other human beings. And, you know, I, 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 you know, I was really moved and I thought it's a great movie. Yeah. You know, to your point, I think also there's just like this kind of basic human, you know, and this is what the movie's playing with, but like the, the act of kind of getting to, you know, put on, you know, go walk in somebody else's shoes, I guess, for, for lack of a better phrase, you know, where, where he talks about how he kind of just gained this, this confidence and this power by pretending to be this, not just any figure, but like a respected figure. Like he, he kind of like gets this, there, there's something like, um, that stirs in him rather than just being this poor out of work, uh, you know, completely cast off figure like he is, 
he gets to be this person who they're you know this family is interested in what he has to say they're interested in what he's doing like it's almost like you almost feel a little sad, uh, bad for him while he's giving his his testimony because yeah he's just he clearly is just a you know this lonely person like he's like yeah i just i kept you know they they offered up so much um, they were just, you know, enthralled with what I was having to say because they thought I was this director. And so I just got like, you know, wrapped up into it. And then, you know, they're talking about, oh, but he was, um, you know, studying each room in the house because he was going to, you know, burglarize it later. And he's just like, no, I was, you know, I was playing the part of the director. I'm supposed to go and look at the different rooms and figure out where, you know, he, he, like it, he was almost like, I was going to have to make a movie if I, you know, if I didn't, uh, if they didn't end up like, you know, uh, getting, you know, if I didn't end up getting arrested, I was going to like probably end up making a movie because he just got so enraptured in, like the act of pretending to be this person because it it completely put him on a different field of of um of vision than than he was before and like the, like that that whole part is just that um degree of empathy that you have to kind of um work through while looking at him is really like that's kind of what separates I feel like Kirovstami from others like just that whole that whole sequence of him describing his motivation and it's not even a motivation that really um to you know to a degree would absolve him in a court of law it's just like yeah like i was just i got i got like yeah i did this but also this is why i did this and like the reasoning was something that was so fascinating i think um re-watching it one of the things that stood out to me is what you kind of just mentioned is like the the kind of subtle like class element um there's a lot of time in the courtroom scenes that spent like talking about like well what can we do for this guy that's going to rehabilitate him make him like a useful member of society and like there's like in a in a way that feels like weirdly dehumanizing um in some ways like i mean there's clearly like a, an empathy that the other people feel for him sort of but they seem to resent the fact that he's like poor and out of work um and one of the things that this guy gets out of like impersonating this famous director is like access to to power and respect that he's not had before because you know just his station in life and there's like a sort of there's a maybe implication in the movie that like what separates like an acclaimed you know artist from like someone who's impersonating an acclaimed artist is is that class or that access to power you know like this guy could have been a great artist and and was like kind of embodying one when he was given that that respect when he when people assumed that like he was someone with like financial means well it, um, it starts out like at the very beginning because you know you have that reenactment scene between him and the and the the woman uh i think it's the the matriarch of the family where they're on this this bus and she like makes this comment like, "Well, if you're a famous director, why are you on the bus? You should have your own car." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then like later on in the testimony, they talk about one of the things that they were so impressed by the guy when they thought he was still the director was like how down to earth he was and how much he like was upfront about money and like there there's like a moment where they talk about like the fact that he was asking for money to make his film was very humanizing, and I think that that speaks to something kind of. Um, maybe like a kind of central like I don't know if it's a hypocrisy but like a central dynamic which is that like there's 
people value the idea of someone who is in touch with like the working class or in touch with like quote unquote common people. But when presented with like someone who is truly a part of the common people, they kind of turn their nose up in a way or, or view that as something to be rehabilitated. And so it's only like the ability of someone with power to navigate the spaces of like, you know, quote unquote, like commoners that's valued, not like the commoners experiences themselves. Um, and I think that that's like something interesting that I definitely didn't pick up on the first time that I watched this. Yeah, and it's also, you know, what what um, what classifies you as as somebody, you know, as somebody with a position of power. Like, it's 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 kind of funny. There's this whole <clears throat> back and forth at the very beginning where the journalist is like one naming off like these various journalists that he looks up to, and the the cab drivers are like, I don't know who any of those people are. Um, it, they've not ridden in my cab. Doesn't he yeah, keep saying that? That's like, line. I don't think I ever drove that person. Yeah, he's just like, <laughs> I, he, he, he hadn't ridden in my cab, so I don't know who he is. Um, and he does the same thing with like some movie directors. He mentions like the director in question. He's like, I don't know who that is. I don't, I don't watch movies. I live life or something. I forgot what he says. Um, but like, there is like, it, it's funny. They, they kind of keep coming to that where like the, you know, the film director is like this very heralded position and they, they, uh, you know, throughout the trial, they keep saying, you know, if he, if he, you know, apologizes and then, you know, enters the workforce and like gets a proper job, like then, yeah, we'll, we'll forgive him and, and, you know, call it all square. Um, but it's, you know, it's interesting, like what a proper job means, you know, you don't really see there, you don't spend a lot of time with this family, but you never really get a sense of like what, they seem to just be kind of hanging out all day. I mean, there's a whole sequence where they're just chilling out with no shoes on, talking to one another until they arrest this guy. Um, but, yeah. but like, you don't really get a sense of, um, you know, what, like, how they got money because they seem to live in like a pretty wealthy part of town. Like, they have a, a gated home and it's in the middle of Tehran, and like they seem very well off, but at the same time they don't have a car like you know they have like the this whole thing where they were talking about him going they he wanted them to, to take them to the specific movie theater to watch uh the cyclist but uh they would have to like find some mode of transportation because they don't uh, you know have a vehicle or something like that and so it's like it was just like this weird like yeah, I couldn't get a sense of like where this family was in terms of like the class dynamics compared i mean they were clearly um wealthier than this guy but at the same time they also had like their own limitations right yeah they're still riding the bus with that guy too but um no it's you know i feel like with um i feel like with the, the, the one thing i was also thinking about with this movie was um and i think this is kind of the the one that i know was uh, somewhat advertised to me like about close up before I watched it the first time is like this kind of straddling line between like what's real and what's not um, you kind of have like this hybrid documentary fiction thing that I mean we talked a little bit about with um, with the Coker trilogy as well because the the second film very much is kind of working with that as well but close up I feel like is probably his, his most explicit um, example of this and it's it's interesting to me just in terms of you know you listen to the monologue that the that the journalist gives at the very beginning 
and like kind of that that threading line between because I just think you know in my experience you know there's on a level you would like to go yeah this you know you're objectively writing this story like there's you're just kind of telling what happened and moving on but there's always that degree of like you have to craft a narrative and so sometimes the narrative is gonna there's that objectivity is gonna bleed into um bleed into like the story that you're writing like today i was writing a story about um this hand recount in georgia and i'm making reference to like you know claims made by these republican senators and things of that nature and you know thinking after watching close up i'm like you know i could you could you could write you could say that i'm unobjective by making those references in this story but at the same time there's there's going to be people who um are still going to find you know fault in that and so it's just kind of interesting whether it's it's journalism or a piece of of art like what Kiara Stami is doing like the the tenuous line that you kind of thread between what is like what's the narrative that you're trying to tell and then what's the truth and what's the documentary that you're trying to present yeah and I I feel like to an extent like that's like a through line through all of his movies, even though they're not, um, not all of them are like, you know, kind of using real documentary footage mixed with like, you know, um, fake documentary footage, but like this idea of like, you know, what is true. I mean, like I mentioned certified copy and the whole, the, the certified copy of the title is like, this guy has written this treatise about like how replications or, uh, of art, um, are themselves art, not just replication, or not just, like, you know, copies of it, you know, and it's, like, you know, a movie that's all about that, and I think, like, one of the things that's really fascinating about his films, and this one in particular, um, is the idea of, like, how does that bleed onto, like, our humanity, too, like, so if we as humans can mimic other humans by, like, you know, making imitations of their art, or making imitations of real life, like, you know, Kiarostami's doing in this movie with, you know, mimicking, like, you know, actual events. At what point, like, does mimicking another human being become the act of, like, becoming that other human being? Or, like, the act of, and, or the act of, like, just finding, like, some sort of, like, uh, you know, kinship or, or solidarity with another human being. And, like, I think this movie's kind of positing that they're, like, one in the same. Like, the idea of mimicry and imitation um, is yes, like you know, artistry, but is also a way to like understand other people and to um, to to um, you know be able to like recognize the humanity of somebody else and kind of you know close close that gap that like separates one person from another. Like you can kind of become like collectively something um, through um, art that that is like explicitly. Um, you know, copies of things. And I think that that's like a really provocative and interesting premise because um, I think a lot of times um, duplication and copies are viewed as inferior. You know, it's like you're a hack. Um, you know, there's there's another way you could have made this movie and maybe it's the kind of movie that like, I don't know, like the Coen brothers or something would have made um, where this guy is kind of a fool and like, um, you know that he doesn't have any real skill. He is 
you know, just like, you know, hopelessly, you know, kind of obsessed and self-deluded, you know, like you think of like Barton Fink or something like that, you know, where this guy kind of like strikes it big, like almost by luck and then really struggles to like actually make something of, of worth. And um, like this movie's kind of the opposite where like this guy is given, you know, almost by luck, um, the opportunity to make something. And like, even though he doesn't actually make a film like he says he's going to, like he does make a film because he is like, he created the scenario out of which this film was created. And he created the scenario that led to like him actually meeting that director and like getting to know this family and stuff. And there's like something like, that's like the movie's like presenting that as like an art, like that is like a meaningful human expression is this thing, this like quote unquote crime that he committed. And like, it's just such an interesting inversion of the normal like, disdain people have for for mimicry or deception that i think is just super super interesting and and cool that this movie does i think your your comparison to the coen brothers is interesting because yeah i I would agree that like they would take this story and have such a, a much more cynical view of it and i think that just kind of shows like the way that kiarostami approaches things compared to um you know, directors like the Comer, and it's not that that they're wrong and he's right or or what have you, but it's just that, like the degree of of empathy that that Kiarostami, you know, places like on on not just um, this main character, but like just the, the 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 kind of characters at large. Like there is kind of this just affection for all of them. You know, like the way that he. Uh, follows around the journalist character as he's like knocking on the different houses to find a tape recorder at the beginning. Then finally, oh my gosh, how he's looking for the tape recorder, and then it like comes around at the end too that he needs a tape recorder at the end. Yeah, and like well, just like the way that he like finally grabs it and just like scurries off, or um, you know, like there's just like these these kind of subtle small moments. I mean, the whole last sequence, like you've described, where the the actual director meets him and like you have like this cutting in and out of the audio because the mic is kind of is is faulty and like you're catching some of the conversation but you're just like kind of viewing how you know they're interacting with one another and like that's there's like there's like all there's like much more impact in just kind of watching the two of them engage with one another without even hearing what they're actually saying back and forth um there's just like this there's just this like love for all of these characters and like they're at the same time they're like real people so that they're they're just kind of like i don't know like there's just like this really amazing affection that he has for the people that he features in his movies and that that's not just something for for close up but i mean i think it's something that we can we can say for his work you know at large but also for i mean the movies that we talked about last week yeah and i know this isn't a movie that is gonna be able to make it into the series but i think a taste of cherry is like one of the his like definitive works of that too and i think in some ways is in conversation with this movie you know because it is like again like this really lonely person who uh i mean the premise of the movie is he's going around driving trying to find someone who will bury him after he commits suicide which you know, is, is, you know, of course, like depicting someone who's at like kind of their lowest depths, but like, there's just this like warmth that is given toward like this, this like poor guy and like the, the people he encounters too, like, you know, are, are just so warmly depicted, 
you know, and then like at the very end of the movie, you get this kind of like pull out and you see like the film production crew themselves and just like, there's just something like really endearing, like, or just how much the movie is endeared to the people who populate it, I think is similar to this movie as well. Um, so if like people, you know, are, are listening to this series and like kind of watching along and like are interested in like that idea, I would definitely recommend Taste of Cherry as well. Yeah, I just actually rewatched that this week because I bought the um, the recent Criterion release of that, and I'm rem- I remember the first time I watched it there, it's just kind of it kind of bowls over you because there's just so, it's just so there's there's a lot there's a lot to digest in that movie with it, at the same time it being a very um, I mean a very simple movie like it's like the, it's it's not it's it's very complex but like the the mechanisms of the narrative are very simple like you describe it's literally just this guy who's driving around trying to find somebody who will bury him after he commits suicide and the like the majority of it is like these interactions that they have where he'll pick up somebody like the first person is this um kind of teenage kid probably like in his early 20s uh, you know, late teens, early twenties, who's in the army, who he picks up. And the thing that I, I noticed on the rewatch is just how there's a, there's like this kind of uncomfortableness with like the, cause you, there is this, this strategy, there is this pattern to his, the way that he, um, kind of gets, <laughs> gets to the point of why he's offered the person this ride, um and like he kind of like you know it's a lot of small talk where are you from like what are you doing like what you know are you are you from around here etc etc and then he'll like work his way into like this conversation about their work or their job or like what their pay is like are they struggling with money he'll like find a way to kind of get to that point and then he like gets in like to this weird um you know, like almost salesman routine where he's just like, I've got a great gig for you if you're looking for some money. Um, and there's just like this, it's it, because then you, and then you like enter, enter this level of uncomfortableness because then once he's broached to, well, one, he hasn't even like explicitly told the person what that he wants them to do. He kind of just says, do you want to make some money? And then drives them to this specific spot and shows them a hole in the ground to which rightfully they get freaked out. And then he like kind of tries to rationalize like, you know, their involvement in this whole endeavor. Um, And but yeah, at the same time, like you're like you're 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 kind of endeared to him but the same like he's you're he's also like he while he's pushing away the to a degree the person in the seat next to him he's also like kind of pushing you away as the audience because it's difficult to to empathize with him while he's like just pushing emphatically for this person to come and throw dirt on him the next day and take money after he's committed suicide without any information about why we've gotten to this point. Yeah. And I think like, it's a more challenging movie than close up because of that. Like both movies are like characters who are doing something that I think a lot of, you know, with, with like, you know, traditionally we would say are like wrong or things you shouldn't do, right. You shouldn't impersonate uh, another person in defraud a family. You shouldn't uh, kill yourself. And like both movies are kind of asking you to like, 
understand like or, or at least empathize with the quest that like these characters are on and i think taste of cherry is so much thornier and and more difficult with how it deals with it just because like you know the like i mean suicide is so much more of a serious topic than you know impersonating somebody and like there is more of that distance it's like it's, it's i guess it's like the idea of close-up with like some of the training wheels taken off like because I mean, people in real life aren't always, like, explicitly endearing in their actions. And this movie's, like, got a pretty heavy ask, like, asking you to, like, find some connection with this guy who's, like, doing, like, this incredibly alienating thing in some ways. Um, but, like, so, like, I, they're, like, two sides of the same coin with Taste of Cherry definitely being the darker of those those sides. Yeah. I'm curious. I was thinking about this while watching as somebody... Um with a deep devotion to to public transit what is your what are your thoughts on like the way he because i mean he uses public transit to a degree in um in close-up as, as, as i mentioned but it seems like and we and we've seen it in a couple of the movies that we've watched so far for this series uh kiara Ostami's use of like the car ride because like you get a lot of that in life and nothing more and then taste of cherry i was thinking about that a lot because you spend the you know 90 percent of the movie 90 95 percent of the movie in a car with just these the, the driver and the passenger kind of going back and forth and close up you have a little bit of that as well um so as, as somebody who's seen a number of kiara Ostami's movies what do you make of his his uh his use of, of car rides for, for narrative purposes. Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of hate cars. I don't like driving, but I have to because I live in Knoxville, Tennessee and work out in the county where there's no bus. But um, I love, like, transit, and I, I think cars cars are terrible and have obviously done, like, terrible things for cities and, like, our environment and, like, whatever. Like, I think, uh, you know, I think that that's bad. But, like, it's funny that you asked that because, like, I wrote in my Letterboxd review for Life and Nothing More uh, something all... I guess I'm going to, like, quote myself here. So, like, sorry for, like, the hubris of this. But, like... No, it's fine. This is, like, the best, like, probably answer that I could come up with. So, like, um, I wrote how I was, like, struck by the use of automobiles in this movie. And I... Uh, this is, like, what I said. I said, more than perhaps any other figure in history, and certainly in film, Kiara Stami over his career worked to reclaim the automobile from its legacy of individualism, capital, and destruction, and turn it instead into a conduit of human connection. Life and Nothing More presents maybe the height of this project in his filmography as the car the filmmaker travels in becomes a collective resource for the people he passes on his way to Coker, giving rides, towing cargo, facilitating dialogue, the collective human project in microcosm. Uh, cars are still terrible, but the fact that Kirasami is able to make me believe in them as a force for good for 90 minutes speaks to the sheer redemptive power of this film. And I, I guess I kind of feel like that for a lot of his films is like the way he uses cars is like to put people in close proximity with one another and in this kind of enclosed and intimate space, which I think is unique to cars. Um, you know, you're in a car with somebody and even though you might be in the middle of a city or, or somewhere, like there is a certain intimacy that you guys share together as like you're in the car with one another. And I think like Kiarostami seems to like understand that and like, like explores it for like the ways that like human beings, you know, kind of become more like intimate in that space. And I mean, it like, it weirdly reminds me of like at the beginning of when Harry met Sally, you know, like how that movie begins with the road trip. Um, 
And I think that there is something, like as much as I hate cars, there's something really unique and special about like what it means to be in a car with somebody else. Um, and, you know, because you're, you're kind of forced to reckon with this other person as like a human being. Um, and like at the beginning of When Harry Met Sally, these people don't know each other and are have to like try to get to know each other as they like drive across the country. And like, I think Kiarostami kind of uses cars to that extent. Um, and I think that that's like a really cool project. Um, I there, There's like a very different thing with public transit where like you get on a bus or a train and you feel a part of something bigger, right? Like, you know, communities are kind of manifest on like public transit. Um, but like in a car, instead of like being part of something bigger, like everyone is kind of stripped down to their most, like like their smallest essence. Like it's hard to you know, be in a car with somebody and not talk to them um, for long stretches of time. Like it, it becomes kind of awkward or, or, or something like that. Like, like cars do the opposite of public transit in a lot of ways that's destructive. But like, I think he's found like the one way in which like cars are kind of, you know, a force for good that I think, um, I don't know. I, well, well, you almost have to like, like looking at Taste of Cherry, it's like you have to kind of, he, he, he like sticks you in this, you know, because you're, you're you feel almost claustrophobic along with the person because the person he offers the, the you know he'll offer a person a ride and they'll be driving for a little while and he'll just be like come on let's just have like a longer drive let's do a longer drive and they're like uh, all right so then you like have to like assess the situation that this person complete stranger is just driving them around like the countryside of Tehran and uh you know, while you have like this beautiful imagery of like the hills and the the fields and the trees and everything, you just like there's like this claustrophobia of being in this small mechanical machine with this person that you have no idea who they are, and then you know they're slowly getting to this point where he's gonna ask you to bury him after he commits suicide, um, and there's like there's it, there it just creates this immediate intimacy whether that's good or bad intimacy it's just like you're immediately in this plane that's complete that this relational relational ship relationship plane that's like completely uh, you know a part of anything else that you have ever had to experience and like that's kind of where he finds that's like that's like where Kiarostami finds the gold in T- Taste of Cherry is that um, he just kind of takes you to this level that, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily a, pl- a place you want to be like in reality, but it's also just kind of fascinating. What well, kind of comes to mind and I, it might be interesting to like do a deeper dive on this at like, I don't know, another point or like a piece of writing or whatever is like, um, the movie I'm thinking of ending things, which presents a car almost like a, like a prison or like an agent of like, you know, because all of us have that experience too, like the person in that movie where you're trapped in a car and you're not the driver or the person who owns the car. And so you're kind of just being towed around um, maybe to places you don't want to go or, or out longer than you don't, than you want to be. Um, and so like, that's like an element too, like to be so intimate with somebody isn't always like a, it's not always like a pleasant experience. And in some ways it can be like a, exploitative experience too and I think like I'm thinking of ending things kind of like minds that a little bit like the anxiety of being in a car with somebody uh, and kind of that forced like intimacy and also like forced like 
vulnerability that it means to be in someone else's car. And like Taste of Cherry, like you said, kind of gets into that too, where, you know, you're in a car with somebody and you have to be close to this person. And if you're uncomfortable with that person, it can be really not so good, like not a really good experience um, or at least a, an awkward experience. Um, so, I mean, I think that it kind of cuts both ways, I guess. Um, yeah. Well, it's funny that in Taste of Cherry, how like it somewhat reverses where the... Uh, <laughs> The, the main character, the guy who eventually agrees to his proposal, then proceeds to just like talk. Uh, you like you've you've watched him. You've watched two interactions that he's had where he's been like the driving force, driving. Yeah, that's the that's my pun, um, of like the conversations where he's kind of like he's the trapper in the whole. St- and then like this this you don't even see where he picks up this guy. But then, like, this third interaction is him kind of being held hostage to a degree, and, like, the tables have flipped on him in this whole um, in this whole car ride. And that seems to, like, <laughs> it's like the weird jogging, like, kind of, like, you know, triggers whatever, changes, you know. He kind of has a little bit of a shift in in perspective because at this like he's he's out of the driver's seat to a degree and this person has kind of taken over and has started to um present him with the questions he's been asking other people it's kind of that's what make that's what's so um i don't know i think to your point at the top that close close up is probably your favorite of kiarostami's work i think taste of cherry is my favorite i mean it's up there too like those who are like i mean i feel like they're like like his two, I really like certified copy as well. Like those three are kind of like, when I think of Kiarostami, like that's what comes to mind now. Um, and like, you know, I, but I think like something like this, this series and like watching more of Kiarostami is you get a real appreciation of like, like this dude is just like hit after hit. Like, I mean, not commercially, but you know, like <laughs> not, you know, Kiarostami in like the nineties was like at the, I don't know. It's like, you know, you think of like these like kind of amazing like runs by by directors or artists where they're they just seem to be like, you know, all these elements are like coming together and like, you know, like David Bowie in the 70s or something like that. And like Kiarostami in the 90s just seemed like so keyed into what he was doing and found such like rich, uh, you know, uh, like beauty and, and, and like interesting permutations of his own kind of like pet obsessions that like there's so much of his 90s work i mean i didn't really like through the olive trees but like other than that like everything else i've seen of him from like this era is just just gold and it's it's really incredible i think yeah and even through the olive trees like if that's his miss like it still has mo i mean we talked about it but there's still moments of it that are kind of interesting that like make it worth checking out um no i agree though um anything else on close-up before we wrap up that you got um other than go and see no, it i mean it's, it's just it's just super good um i also I'll, I'll point out um that the uh whatever like the famous poster um of this movie which is like a close-up of the film stock of like one of the final shots of the movie where he's like holding the plant on the bike is just great and you, where you can see like the little like grains of like the film, um, the film, and 
I, it's like one of my favorite movie posters of all time, actually. And I, I think that like, it, it's like one of the one of these movie posters that like really enriches the movie and is enriched by the movie um, when like once you watch it. And I don't know. I don't. I kind of sometimes feel like film posters are disposable, but this feels like so cool. Yeah. No, it's the 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 Criterion. The I think it's the same thing as the film poster, but the Criterion like. Uh, like image or whatever the box is uh is pretty great like it just has such a that image is so that that because i think it's the what is it it's the final shot that the kind of freeze frame that they use is it the freeze frame it might be yeah yeah so no it's great um i think it's on it's on criterion channel but i think it's also on canopy if you guys have that um close up so yeah, if you're if if you're listening to this and you're trying to figure out a kind of a good entry point on Kiarostami, like we said, I think this would be a good one. Um, you couldn't go wrong with the Coker trilogy, also, but this would probably be a good one where you're hitting one of his best, but also kind of one that is a little bit of a of a you know, it kind of opens up. This is how this is the mode that he's kind of working on. It kind of lets you understand that to a degree. So. All right. Well, uh, that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary, and on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary, where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Um, head over to patreon.com slash cinematary. We should hopefully have a film theory and chill coming up pretty soon. Um, but we we got a we have our spooky one from this past month and a lot of other goodies. Hopefully, having some more stuff available on the Patreon channel pretty soon. But uh, thank you to our patrons: Cam, Chad Newsom, Christina Daughtry, Cindy Roberts, Terry Eskin, Hell Yeah Small World, Joe Jordan, Maggie, Ron Hayes, The Kittiest of Kittens, Titus Arthur, Tyler Chandler, and Whitney Rhea Ross. Thank you so much for your patronage. Next week, we will be continuing our Kiara Ostami series with 2002's 10 which um is another one that i've heard i feel like this will continue our our car ride conversation <laughs> into another week nice so yeah you know it's 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 a real shame that uh Kiara Stami wasn't around to to direct like an episode of carpool karaoke or something <laughs> uh that makes me sad <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, it's like Tarantino got his like CSI episode. Like Kiarostami needed his, his his uh like or Cash Cab or something. You know, one of those like shows that takes place. In I the feel car. like I feel like Kiarostami like he would scoff at um, carpool karaoke, but he might be into Cash Cab. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> I don't know. He would like like there's there's like a degree of like community in that carpool karaoke. There's no community or no like engaging with another human being like there's a little bit of that in, in cash cap but um you know that's the in in this essay i will look at the comparisons between the work of abbas kiarostami and cash cab so um all right well i'll uh i'll wrap it up we'll see you next week thank you thank you